0: But anyway, um, that break went a little longer than I anticipated, which is great fellowship and is a huge part of this deal. It's a really huge part of this deal. One of the reasons I like going to workshops and to conferences and stuff so much is you know what I mean, you know, fellowshipping you know meeting new people, you know what I mean, expanding my network, and you know I get that. but so uh, I'm not going to do much of an introduction. You know, Jim's Jim, this next speaker has has a huge place in my heart. you know he, we, I've stayed in his home, he's stayed in our home, he's an amazing man. And uh, he came down from Jacksonville for us once before to speak, and he's down from Jacksonville again to speak for us today. And since we've taken such a long break, uh, I can say a lot about him, but let's just get him up here and let him tell you about himself. Now, we got Jim P from Jacksonville on Woo-hoo! step six and seven. I'm an alcoholic. My name's George. Jim. Hey, Jim. And uh, God, this has been pretty cool, really and truly. Uh, you know, what's really cool about something like this is the guys who put it on. Uh, the, the time and effort that people put together to, to bring people together in this fellowship, um, it, it's a wonderful feeling. And, uh, and I love Alcoholics Anonymous and I love the people I get to meet. Because I hadn't met Mike before, and I hadn't met Russell before. But I knew Mike, and I knew Russell. I knew him through their talks, because I was raised on speaker talks. You know, Russell was talking about speaker meetings and step meetings. Well, my sponsor was a little Scottish guy who came over from Scotland many years ago, and uh, and what he did because he didn't find AA really very good in Scotland. I mean, he he talked about Drinkers Anonymous over in Scotland, and and if you brought a big book in, they'd throw you out of the meeting. If you talked about God, they'd throw you out of the meeting. And so he had to send away for Joe and Charlie tapes over in America, and he got sober back in uh, in '85. Um, and what he started doing was making copies of these tapes and taking them around to AA groups in Scotland. And then that developed into him really starting to love to kind of organize all these speaker talks. And I knew Russell through his talks because he would, he would call me over and he would say, listen to this guy. And I knew Mike through these talks. And what happened is, is my sponsor died about a year and a half ago And at the time of his death, he had amassed over 36,000 speaker talks, AA conventions, workshops. He has one of the largest free AA websites. People talk about uh, XA speakers. He started XA speakers by, by providing them with all the speakers that they started out with. And that's pretty cool is to finally meet guys, you know, I got sober in 2002. I came into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1998, so you can see that I had a little bit of an ego problem. Yeah, just a small one. Um, Because you didn't understand, Russell. I'm different. You know, I can do this. You know, I, 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 I came in to save a marriage. I didn't come in to save my life. I came back to save my life. Because I wasn't an alcoholic when I got here. I was not an alcoholic. I was not a drug addict, even though I did it for 35 years every day. I had a job. You know, if you have a job and you go to work, how could you be an alcoholic? You know, it's weird to me, and it's not weird anymore because it's just so perfect, is that the things that I thought when I came into AA, I go to places in California or I go to places in North Carolina, and people say the exact same thing. They had the exact same feelings and thoughts. You know, I, I went out to California one time, and, and somebody said something about the hula hoop. You know, and I don't know if you all have heard of that here. I'm sure you have. And, and I, this guy used to hammer it in Orlando where I got sober. And I thought, my God, he's been to California because they knew about this hula hoop. You know, everything outside, you put an invisible hula hoop over you, and everything inside that hula hoop is between you and God. And everything outside that hula hoop is none of your damn business. You know, and then somebody in California says that, and I'm like, wow, he heard this from the, no. It's we all share the same thing. We all share the solution. And that hula hoop's been around since the 40s. You know, and I thought it was invented by this guy in Orlando in 1998. You know, it's crazy. It's crazy. You know, Mike got up here and talked about steps one and two. And what I heard, I don't know if what you heard, but I heard what's called the vicious cycle. This over and over, this 14 years, and he's getting bored. And all of a sudden, a drink's a good idea. You know, and once that drink sets off that phenomenon of craving in us, I mean, I don't know about you all, but I have buried so many people in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have buried a lot of good friends. I have buried some great sponsees that I really thought, you know, my thinking, you know, but I really thought they had this thing down pat. And we watch these people come in. We watch them get sober. We watch their life just change. And all of a sudden, things get so good that I really don't need to go to a meeting, that I really don't need to call my sponsor. I don't need to pray today. You know, my life's great. I'm not drinking. You know, Bill talks about, you know, People who think that just not drinking is enough, you know, they're ignorant. And, and I'm not calling anybody ignorant. If you're just not drinking and going to meetings, that's great for you. That's fellowship sobriety. It damn near killed me. And if I don't get off too much on bunny trails, which I, I have notes. I don't know about anybody else, but I have notes. You know, and, and, and so Mike's up here talking about this vicious cycle. And then he gets into step one and two. And Russell comes up here and, and, and really shares from the heart, you know, 3, 4, and 5. And if you didn't hear it, I heard it. But well, what I heard more than anything else is I heard the laughter. And the laughter is what my sponsor taught, taught me was the music of AA. Because I don't know anybody who walks into their first meeting or their second meeting and they're full of joy and laughter. You know, most of us come in here, our lives are, are just crashing around us. We're burning and dying, and we don't know it. Some of us know it. Some of us come in and grab a white chip, and, man, that's it. You know, they have a great life. They, they don't ever drink. They don't even think about drinking again. But I'm up here to talk about my experience, my experience with step 6 and 7, all the steps. You know, because when I came in here, I did not have a God. I was not raised in a religious family. I was raised in an Air Force family, and it wasn't like we were anti-God or atheist. We just didn't go to church, and we didn't talk about, about God. And so when I came in here and I saw the word God up there, a lot of people say that, you know, the word God scares them out and the, the bottle will scare them back in. The word God didn't scare me. But had I come in here and had you handed me a Bible or a Koran or a Torah or any of the religious books because – what I had was not a God, but I had all this preconceived notions and prejudice about religion. I had all this stuff in my mind that, you know, religious people were full of junk. And, and what I've learned through the book and, and by living these steps like Russell was talking about, not working them, but actually living them, is that, you know, religious people are great people. And I do see today, and I'll talk more about it in 10 and 11, about how religious people are right and make use of what they have to offer. But what I had to do first, the absolute first thing I had to do is I had to get this first step down. And I couldn't do it as long as I kept feeling different and I kept feeling a part of. And that's what I did. I did it for a long time. I, I refuse to admit. I would say to you, I'm an alcoholic. I would say in a meeting, my name's Jim and I'm an alcoholic. But that's not that's not what I did. You know, I did not concede to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic. And the book says that's the first step of recovery. You know, the steps on the wall, and if you take the steps off the wall like I did for three and a half years going in and out, you know, you get off the wall sobriety is what my sponsor taught me. And so what you need to do is actually use the book because that's where the program is, the clear cut directions the specific instructions on how these people recover from a hopeless state of mind and body. Um, when I got here, like I said, I was trying to save a marriage. Now, my entire youth, from the time I started drinking at 11, that first drink, I, I know a lot of people have different, different feelings um, when they take their first drink. My, my feeling was more. That's all I wanted was more. No matter how bad it hurt, no matter how hard it, it treated me, all I wanted was more alcohol. And then because I'm a child of the 60s, all those outside influences came in. And I could have said I was a drug addict and I did everything that everybody else did. But I can tell you this, you know, I took my first drink and something, something turned in my body. And so when all those other influences came in and I did them all, I was drinking the whole time. Anything else I did, I was always washing down with alcohol. And then when I got into real estate, many years later, um, I got rid of all the outside influences. All of them, except for alcohol. And when I got here, I can guarantee you alcohol was my master. I mean, I could not not drink. Um, Real quick, you know, my youth was spent um, in a lot of juvenile homes, Uh, County lockups, jails, institutions. I I never went to treatment. And and I told my sponsor, Willie, one time, you know, I almost feel like I need to drink again and go through treatment because everybody goes through treatment. And he said, I didn't. You know, I was sponsored by one of the last pure alcoholics. He didn't do any drugs or anything else. And so the primary purpose was very strong with him. And And I'm a primary purpose kind of guy. But at the same time, I also realize today that I see an awful lot of young people come in a lot earlier. I was 44 when I came in. But I see people come in at 20 and 21 because of drugs, because they got taken down to that bottom so hard, so fast. And a guy the other night picked up 43 years in, uh, in Jacksonville, and, he, and he's a wonderful man. And he said that, you know, we have a room full of young people that hit their bottom so much faster because of these other influences. But they come to Alcoholics Anonymous because that's what works for them. And what works for them is that spiritual program that we work, that we do, and that we live in our life each day. I didn't have a God when I got here, but how many times did I have to look back over my life and say, who did I cry out to when they were putting the cuffs on me? Who did I cry out to when I was being sentenced to prison? It was always God. Please God don't let this happen. Please God you know, so I had I had something in the back of my mind. I just never had any religious training. I just never had any I don't I don't want to use the word dogma, but I just did, so I'm gonna say, you know, I just never had any of that stuff. Now my grandmothers were, were real strong in their church and their belief. But in the air force I don't you know, my dad believed in God. But he also believed in taking care and, and making sure that he knew how to fly that B-17 or whatever airplane he flew. And he did it by practice. And that's what we learn in Alcoholics Anonymous is that we practice these things. You know, we don't get it. I mean, there's some people that I think are absolutely perfect. But if you go up to them and say, you know, you know like a friend of mine, Sandy, a lot of us had, had Sandy Beach as a friend, you know. And you, that guy was so spiritual. And he would say, you know, I'm just doing the deal. Everybody's got the same thing. They just have it in different ways. I have a better way of saying it. I've had more practice. And, and what I've done today is I, I got up this morning and I did the same thing I did 14 years ago. I got up this morning and I said, please, God, keep me away from a drink or a drug. Don't let me hurt anybody mentally, physically, emotionally, or spiritually. And let me help somebody in your name. And that's a pretty quick prayer. You know, I don't have to have four hours of prayer, but I do a lot of meditation. And, and I'm going to jump into that later on. But, you know, going through the steps with the sponsor is really important. Um, what, I, what I didn't believe I had, I found I had. And I had this hundred forms of fear, this delusion, this self-pity, this selfishness, this ego... This ego that just wouldn't allow me to say, I've got a problem, I need help. Those are things I couldn't say when I got here. Um, And today I don't have a problem saying that. You know, I need help every day. I need God help every day in my life. Because I can't do this thing on my own. I can't stay sober on my own. And what I tried to prove is, is I tried to prove that I could stay sober on fellowship. And I did that after, after three and a half years. During that three and a half years, the last part of that, I went to meetings every day. I was praying every day. <sighs> I was not drinking. And I wasn't fighting it that much. I mean, every now and then I would think about it real hard, but then I would fight it, and I'd say, no, I'm not going to do that. And what I heard a lot is don't drink and go to meetings. Don't drink and go to meetings. And that's what I was doing. And for an alcoholic like me, the day is going to come. Something's going to happen, and it could be something horrible or it could be something not so horrible. But if all I'm doing is not drinking and going to meetings and I'm not filling filling that void, you know, when you drink and, and do other things for 35 years and you stop, there's this void in you that, that you've got to fill with something. And what I learned is i got to fill it with God. I've got to fill it with my higher power. And, and I just choose to call it God today. I mean, really and truly. Russell was talking about the Bible, and a lot of people cringe when they hear that in AA. And, and you know, he's talking from a historical perspective. You go to Dr. Bob's house in Akron, and, and there, that's a mecca that people go to every year around June 10th. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of people go there. And if you go into his house, there's this glass case. And in the glass case is this book, and it's open to this page that Anne, his wife, loved. And it's the book of James. And it's faith without works is dead. And so like he said, you know, the first four years we didn't have a book. And they used the Bible. And so to me, that's great. But it also tells me in the spiritual experience that the only way that I can be defeated is if I close my mind to all spiritual principles. And so I have to keep an open mind today. I have to allow people to have their own God. I don't ever force my God on anybody that I'm working with. I don't ever carry it around with me. And I don't have anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with people who do. Absolutely nothing wrong. It's just the way I was brought up. I read the Bible, but I've read the Torah. I've read Krishna. I've read Buddhism. Buddhism. These are all great things, and and how they got to their God and how you get to your God is your business. I just know that without God in my life, I am absolutely going to pick up a drink. I know it, and I proved it. I went nine months on Fellowship Sobriety, nine months without a drink, and I came to a meeting to pick up my nine month chip and everybody to applaud me. My group was Central Orlando a Group in Orlando. I'm a member of the West Connect group in Jacksonville, Florida right now. And I got the applause, but it was a speaker meeting. And this guy got up there who I'd never met and the man told my story. And I've been to a bunch of speaker meetings up to then, but this guy told my story and I was mesmerized. My head was bobbing like that little a little doll on the back of a car that bobbles up and down. I mean, everything he was saying. You know, I thought I was the only one who drank Schlitz malt liquor because you could get drunk faster. I thought I was the only one who bought Ltd whiskey because you can get it for cheap. You know, the only time I drank for the 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 flavor is if I came to your house and you had Crown Royal. I'd be glad to drink. It. But you come to my house, you're drinking Schlitz malt liquor or Ltd. No, you're not. You're bringing your booze. Which was really good for me because I'd drink your booze and then you'd leave mine alone. You go home and I'd have more of mine. But the, the bottom line is that I this guy was just telling my story. Now, during this nine-month period, I'd learned enough in the first couple of, couple of years that y'all were asking me questions. You know, do you have a sponsor? And and at first I'd say, yeah, I got a sponsor. And then every couple of months, my sponsor and I would decide it's a good good idea to go have a drink and just test the waters, and we'd go out and get drunk. Um, I'd, I'd wind up be, by myself. Well, that's because I was sponsoring myself, you know, and and, and a person sponsor, you know, that's the ism, I sponsor myself, and, and a person sponsoring themselves is one sick puppy, and I was. And so people would ask me, you know, I, I got the lingo down, you know, I, I knew how to, I knew how to act, I knew how to talk, and, Got a sponsor? Yes, I do. What's his name? Uh, this is an anonymous program. He doesn't want his name used. Yeah. I'd love to hear it when people laugh when I say that. Because I was in Ohio one time, and I said that, and nobody in the room laughed. And I thought, oh, my God, they all sponsored themselves, you know. <laughs> because that's, that's exactly what I was doing. But this guy told a story so powerful that after the meeting, the guy who brought me there said, Come on, Jim, shake his hand. And uh, you know, after a meeting, there's all kinds of people in line, and and I said, well, I'll talk to him later. He said, no, come on, I'll I'll get you up front, and you can just shake his hand. Thank you for coming here to talk. And I'm like, okay, you know. So I got up there, and this guy grabbed my hand. He's got these big bear claw hands, and uh, his name was Joe. And I said, Joe, you know, I really appreciate what you had to say. You really you really hammered home my story. And my friend who was with me said, hey, Joe, this is my friend Jim. He needs a sponsor. And I'm like, I can't get my hand out of the guy's hand. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, I now look back on it, and I know that was the hand of God. Because I looked at Joe, and I said, would you sponsor me? And he said, well, you know, are you done drinking? And I said, well, of course I'm done drinking. I just picked up a nine-month chip. He said, all right. And here's where some of the things that started happening to me that, that I realized that there was really a God. You know? I took out a business card. Now, I'm going to jump around. I've got notes up here to keep me from jumping around, but I'm going to jump around anyway because, you know, that's what we do. We, I mean, i got a friend named Charlie Parker out in Texas. to talked about bunny trails, and so I don't want to be on a bunny trail, so I have all these notes, and I never pay attention to them, and I get on these bunny trails anyway. But I took out my business card, and I'm in real estate. You know, and, and, and I'll tell you that real estate is a very ego-driven business. You know, you really need to have an ego. You need to be patted on the back. You need to be in the newspaper. And, uh, and on the white side of that business card, I wrote down my phone number, and I handed it to this guy named Joe, and I said, call me Monday if you want to sponsor me. Okay. Whoops. Joe took out his business card, and on the white side, he wrote down his phone number, and he said, call me Monday if you want me to sponsor you. And when we turn those two business cards over, we're standing in this parking lot and all these people are around. We work for the same real estate company. <laughs> he worked in the next city over in new homes. I worked in the other city in commercial. We have been at, at real estate conventions together. I did not know this man, never seen him. And I said, something's going on. I've, I've been around enough that I knew that something was going on. And I felt it. I felt it. The next day I got up and I went to a 10 a.m. meeting at my group. It was a great meeting. It was a spiritual meeting, Sunday morning, and on the way home for no reason at all. The book talks about, you know, there wasn't a cloud in this guy. This guy, you know, he had a great business venture. Everything went off well. And, and for no reason at all, my car pulled into an ABC liquor. And I bought a half gallon of whiskey because I'm going to have one drink. I'm going to have one drink and prove that I can have one drink, and then I'm going to work the steps the way I want to with this guy on Monday. You know, that's that's what's going on in my brain. And I remember taking that one drink, and I don't remember anything else. And when I came to on Monday morning, I'm on my kitchen floor. I'm covered in puke and pee and blood, and I don't know who I hurt because every time, In the last three and a half years of my active drinking before I came to AA and in those two and a half plus years that I was in AA, every time I drank, somebody got hurt. And I didn't want to hurt anybody, but somebody got hurt. And so I'm sitting there and and we hear the moment of clarity. We hear this, you know, God just comes to us at this one perfect time. And all I could think about is what have I done? Who have I? Who have I killed? Who have I hurt? And it took me about ten minutes to realize that I had hit my head on the kitchen table, going down to the floor, and I very well could have bled to death. And I reached over to that phone, and the, this guy's card was there, and I called Joe, and he answered the phone, and I told him what I did, and Joe laughed. He laughed. I don't know how we pick sponsors that we wind up hating for a period of time, but I did. You know, he's laughing, and he said, "Jim, it sounds like you're ready. It sounds like you're ready to really do the deal. Pour out the rest of that whiskey. Go to your noon meeting. Pick up a white chip." And I said, "I can't do that. I mean, there's 129 groups in Orlando. I can go to any other group and pick up a white chip, right?" He said, "No." Because that ego of yours is going to kill you. You're going to go back in front of all those people that you've been you fellowship with and bowling with and drinking coffee with and lying to for all that time. And you're going to pick up a white chip. And we're going to work these steps. And that's when my recovery started. That's when this deal started happening on February 18, 2002. And we did the first three steps that day. Because Joe was from the old school, and then Willie was definitely from the old school, where when you're hurting, when you're dying, when you are at the lowest, the book even talks about it, the 12 and 12 talks about it, that's when we're willing to do this thing. That's when we're willing to throw that ego under the bus and say, I am willing to do anything so I don't have to drink again. Because it's all about not drinking when we first get here. It was for me. I'm not speaking for anybody else. I'm only speaking from my experience. And if I say anything that, that doesn't gel with you and your sponsor, listen to your sponsor. Or come up to me afterwards and I'll try to explain it to you why, why I feel that way. But every one of us is on our own individual journey. And, and what happened was Joe is we started working the steps and we started doing the deal. And I started having these things happen that I no longer could call coincidence. I had to realize that somehow or another, all my life, there had been some power watching over me. I, I had been, I was the fifth out of six children. I had three older sisters, an older brother and a younger brother that was ten years younger than me. And my parents were not alcoholics. Their parents, their grandfathers, or their fathers, my grandfathers, both died of alcoholism. So my mom and dad didn't want to go that route, and so they weren't. Um, Dad was an Air Force hero. Mom was a stay-at-home. She was the base commander's wife, and so she had all these things to do. Uh, Easter and Christmas, we might go to church just so we dressed up and looked good. But other than that, there just wasn't any talk about God or anything else. It was go to school, do right. But I couldn't do that. You know, my my older brother and my three older sisters were just, I I call them goody-two-shoes, but they weren't goody-two-shoes. They just towed the line. They did what Dad asked them to do. They followed directions, and Jim couldn't do that. Jim wanted to be out playing. Jim wanted to be out having fun. Jim didn't like school. And so Jim started doing things with people that were older than Jim, four years older than me. And they, you know, Mike talked about, you know, putting a pack of gum in your pocket or just picking up something. Well, yeah, we we became burglars. Because we wanted to take your booze and get drunk. And that's what we started off doing, is just breaking into your houses. Yeah, everybody else is at school. You were at work. And we'd break in your house and we'd find your booze, and we were good. You know, I didn't care about your jewelry. I didn't care about your coin collection. I didn't care about your guns. I just wanted your booze. That's all I was looking for. Now, that progressed, and it progressed until I was 16, And I'm getting arrested. I'm going to a juvenile home. And and nobody is ever thinking, or at least they've never said, you know, it might be an alcohol problem. It might be a drug problem he's got. They just, you know, you're doing criminal behavior. You're going to do criminal time. And I continued to go in and out, in and out, in and out of juvenile homes and then jail. And then when I turned 16, I picked up a gun, you know, and I started doing armed robberies. Uh, I think... I don't know for a fact, but I'm thinking that, that we were some of the first people in Orlando in, in the late 60s to do home invasions. And I to this day, I still thank God that nobody was ever home because I uh, I was so drunk, and I, and I happened to like – a specific form of outside influence called PCP, which really just rots your brain from the inside out, makes you totally stupid. It's animal tranquilizer. And, you know, I don't know what I would have done had somebody been home. And so I just thank God nobody was home. But by the time I was 18, I had done so many things, and and the courts had gotten tired of me. And when I turned 18 years old, I'd been on the run. I'd got out on bail um, when I was 17. My dad posted some bail, and he, he really didn't want to, but, you know, I begged him. I wrote an alcoholic letter from jail. I'll promise i never do this again. I promise, I promise, I promise. And, and he got me out, and I took off that night after I stole his gun. And when I finally got caught, I went before a judge, and I was, I was suffering from my second bout of serum hepatitis. That's from using dirty needles, so just throw that out there for you. And a judge sentenced me to 52 years in the state penitentiary in Rayford, Florida. I'm 18 years old, and I know my life has ended. I know I'm going to die. I know what Rayford is. I know what prison is. And I went back to that isolation cell I was in, and the only book in that cell was a Bible. That's the only book that was in there. And I didn't open it. I didn't read it. I just held it, and I rocked back and forth crying, please, God, don't let this happen. Please, God, don't let this happen. And I can look back on many events like that and know that just me acknowledging God, even though I wasn't in any kind of really reliance or belief, just acknowledging God that good things happen. Because after a couple weeks, I was taken back before that judge, and he said, I'm going to give you a second chance. Well, it's like the 50th chance, but he was going to give me one more chance. He thought I might have some redeeming qualities, and so I went to a chain gang. And, and, you know, a lot of people, unless you see the movie Cool Hand Luke, really don't understand what a chain gang is, but we really had chain gangs in Florida, you know, and, and that's where I went. They didn't have chains. Those were off of you, but sun up to sundown six days a week, you know, you were in the back of a truck, and it was the most miserable time, and I... And I hated it, and I couldn't wait to get out of there, and I couldn't wait to get off the road so I could get in the kitchen so I could figure out how to open cans and put stuff together, and all of a sudden I could make alcohol. Because Dr. Silkworth, before way before I ever even knew about Alcoholics Anonymous or about the doctor's opinion, he had me tagged. You know, I drank for the effect produced by alcohol. And if you're in a changing or you're in prison and you make what's called buck, it is the nastiest taste stuff you've ever had in your life. But you can get the effect produced by alcohol, and I did that. You know, I'm out there to be punished. I'm out there to, to, to serve some time for society, and all I can think about is how can I get drunk? How can I get a drink? And so I had that phenomenon of craving. I had that allergic reaction. Those things were ingrained into me. But until I was able to clear up my mind, and stop thinking that I was different and stop thinking that, you know, I can do this on my own. Was I able to actually read the doctor's opinion and go, yeah, there I am right there. That's me. Um, I got out of that, that problem with jail, and, and my dad and I reconciled when I was about 26 years old, and um, and he asked me to get into real estate with him and I I told you I got into real estate because somehow or another a lot of my felonies just disappeared you know it's, it's one of those things that I'd like to find out where they went I have no clue where they went but I can tell you right now that if you look at my record and you go through all the things that I've gone through with FBI and Homeland Security background checks and everything else I've never been convicted of a felon and yes I have yes I have but I don't know where they are. I I never petitioned for them to be removed. Nobody in my family has. It's just another act of God that I can see in my life today. And most of the time when I see the act of God or the hand of God, it's behind me. I look behind me, and I can see, wow, that's what happened. That was God working in my life today. And I have no problem talking about God. I mean, I really don't. I, I love my life, and I love what's happened. So we're going through the steps, and I did the best I could. I mean, I, I really did. Um, I, I was not wanting to go back to that hell I was in. And so I did the steps to the best of my ability. And then I did them again when I got with Willie. And I've done them again with my newest sponsor because, like I told you, little Willie's died. Um, and, and that was a real painful time. And, and this is one of the first times that I can feel it inside of me, and I'm not breaking down and crying because I know Willie's with me today. You know, that that little man was a soldier for Alcoholics Anonymous because all he wanted to do was give it away for fun and for free. He wanted people to hear all these different speakers for fun and for free. He never accepted a dime, wouldn't take a a penny. And today that website that that I've got, and I'll tell you about it afterwards, um, I've taken the whole external hard drive and i made copies of it. There's a guy here in Stewart that sends out a daily talk named Tom. And he pulls a a speaker off of that every day and sticks it out there. There's a lady named Karen, or Carlene, down in Australia. And they send it out all over Australia. And so it's all over the world is Wee Willie's website, you know. And that's, he never wanted a pat on the back. And he wanted to teach me about humility. He wanted to teach me about doing the right thing. My dad tried to teach me all these same things. Your word is your bond not until i came to alcoholics anonymous and quit drinking was my word my bond you know the i i can tell you i've, I've got a sponsor now got 40 something years and danny called me and asked me to come down down here to you know to maybe do a step or two or something like that and and i thought maybe i had something else i wanted to do today <laughs> excuse me and uh I went to my sponsor, and I said, well, you know, he's asked me to come down there and do that, and I kind of want to do something else on Saturday. He says, well, what kind of commitment you got for AA on Saturday? And I'm like, none. And, you know, I don't know how I pick these sponsors. that They don't even have to say anything. They just look at you, and, and you just go, oh, man. Danny, I'll be there, you know, whatever you want me to do. And God bless Danny and Susan. I mean... They take me into their house, they feed me, and then they give me their bedroom. I mean, they go out and sleep on the couch or the chair in the living room, and they, they just, you know, they treat me like royalty. Why? You know, I'm just a drunk. I don't know. I don't know. It's because they've got God in their life, too, and I know it, and I can feel it. And uh, in, in doing the steps... I really, you know, there was just no way. You know, I just said, there's no way. I'm not just not going to do these things. I'm not going to write these things down. And I'm certainly not going to share some of this stuff, some of this stuff. You know, and, and it was pointed out to me, you know, well, Jim, if you don't do that four-step, you're probably going to drink. And it says in the fifth step, if I don't tell somebody all my life story, I said, all my life stories? I, you know, that's why it's in those squiggly lines, you know. It's kind of important. You know And so I had to do one of these searching and fearless moral inventories of myself and write down my whole life story. And what it did is it really made me look at myself. It made me look, and I felt like crap. I mean really and truly, I'm writing down this stuff and then I'm starting to share it. And I'm not feeling this great relief that everybody else is talking about in the beginning. But by the end, and I'm in tears, And Joe in the beginning said the same thing that Willie said. Yeah, I understand I did that too. You know, it's not like I invented any of these things I did. I had a lot of problems. I had a lot of problems in that sex column, I had a lot of problems in that fear column. I didn't think I had any resentments. I don't know why I wound up with so many names on that resentment list. And then, you know, I I shared this with a man, and I did get that relief, I did get that feeling. I didn't get that power that they talk about. That power, I, not the power that I could do anything, but the power of God coming in my life and saying, you don't have to live like that anymore, Jim. You don't have to be like that anymore. But you're not done. You're not done. Because the book over and over talks about, you know, how, how long are we supposed to take to do this program? Let's see, we launched into this course of action, immediately followed by, and at once. I mean, if you start listening to those kind of words, you're thinking, you know, Bill and Bob and those first 75 or 100, however many you want to actually call them, they were doing this thing overnight. They were taking all 12 steps or the steps that they could take in the beginning, based on the Oxford Group uh, principles, and they were doing them immediately. My sponsor told me the reason we're doing this is not because we're in a race and not because we're in a hurry. But I need to get you into what Russell's going to talk about a little bit later on. I need to get you into service. I need to get you out of yourself because thinking about yourself is your problem. You are the most selfish, self-centered person in this world until you start thinking about somebody else and helping other people. And so, you know, when I get to... To six, you know. Willingness is what they talk about, and the seven humility. Well, you know, was I entirely ready? Yeah, I was. I was entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. And and I love the way Bill puts these things. He says defects, shortcomings, um, wrongs. They're all the same thing. They're all absolutely the same thing. There are. For a lack of a better word, there are sins. You know, and Bill talks about sins in the 12 and 12, the seven deadly sins. But really, what are they? You know, they are my fears. My ego was my biggest problem. I told you that. And I didn't realize it until I got to step five and then started asking God to remove that ego, that all my ego and pride was driven by fear. You know, fear is that third column in the big book with, you know, in parentheses over and over and everything, it seemed like was driven by fear. Well, that was my life. I was driven by that hundred forms of fear. And why? What did I have to fear? That you wouldn't like me? You're a bunch of drunks. What do I care if you like me or not? But still, I wanted you to like me. And and that was that fear, that was that ego. Now, I had problems with, I didn't think I had problems with greed, but I always wanted more. And whether it was more money or more sex or more power or more prestige, that's greedy. You know, and I had to turn over greed. Who wants to give up lust? I mean, really, truly, I'm going to be a eunuch, you know, if I give up lust? No, what my sponsor said, if you turned your lust over to God, he's going to give you love. He's going to give you real love that you've never felt in your life. A love for somebody I've never met. A love for somebody who walks into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and says, I'm dying. I need help. And that's exactly what I got. I have to, I have to really let go. In that third step that, that Russell was talking about, that's a decision but that's immediately followed by action if I just sit around with that decision, I'm not going anywhere. But if I follow it up with action, to look at myself and to ask God to be rid of these things that block me from him and my fellows, then I'm really going to go somewhere. But until I'm willing to do that, until I'm willing to entirely let go of those things, I'm going to be stuck. I may not drink, but I'm going to be stuck, and I'm not going to have any kind of growth. And the whole point of this program for me is to continually to grow spiritually every day, to maintain that conscious contact, and to keep improving it. And I can't do that if I'm if I'm holding on to my old ideas and my old plans. Um, was I thoroughly convinced that God would take these things away? No. I wasn't thoroughly convinced. But what did I have to lose? You know, what did I have to lose by turning over these, these old ideas, my plans, my way, you know, all these things. You know, I didn't get my way today. Well, Sandy used to say, well, don't have a way. You know, my plans didn't turn out. Well, don't have any plans. You know, I'm like, how do you live life without plans and having a way? You live it pretty damn good. You know, really and truly, for me, you live it pretty damn good. You let God have the plan. And you just become open and available for God to come into you. And he does. That's the cool thing, is that we come in here, I come in here with the preconceived notions, I come in here with this, this prejudice against religion and everything else, and then I get opened up inside. You know, I'd like to say I get filleted, and all of a sudden I'm just bare bones in front of God. You know, I come into the world naked, I'm going to go out of the world naked, and God is the only thing that's got me. And he's got everything about me. And all I have to do is leave it in God's hands, and everything's going to be fine. He's going to give me direction every day. He's going to do for me, like it says, what we can't do for ourselves. You know, I have to surrender. And that's the biggest deal. That's step three. That's step four. That's the program, is the continuous surrender every day of my will in my life, which I didn't know at the time were my thoughts and my actions, but that's what it came out to be. It's my will in my life. Every day I have to turn this over to God. Every day I have to ask God, take these defects and remove them. Remove whatever is blocking me so I can be of service, so I can be of help. Um, You know, when I I throw out the word service, and like I said, Russell's going to talk about that. You know, my first service position came about two weeks after I had my last drink, and I called Joe. And we're right in the middle of the four-step, and he's got me writing. And I'm writing this stuff down that I don't want to write down, but I know I've got to do it. And I go to a meeting, and, you know, just like outside here, you know, where the cigarettes cans are on the ground. And, And for some reason, I picked up the phone, and I said, you know, Joe, I don't know what's wrong with all these people over here at this central group. They can't even hit the cigarette. Can with their cigarette butts. There's cigarette butts all over the ground. And Joe goes, well, you know what your job is for the next week? You're going to pick up every cigarette butt in that parking lot. That's your service position for the first week. And I'm like, how is that? What has that got to do with sobriety? What are you? He said, Jim, if you've got time to worry about cigarette butts, you've got too much time on your hand. And do you know that in the past 14 years, I have never complained about cigarette butts on the ground to anybody now I'm still a smoker I hate it and I just haven't given it to God because I know he'll take it but I can guarantee you I can guarantee you that that my cigarettes go in that can because I don't want the, I don't want somebody else to say hey what are you doing throwing cigarettes on the ground hey you got a new job buddy <laughs> you don't know, become willing like only the dying and the drowning. You know, that's what we have to do. You know, I don't know anybody who's willing to do this program when, when they first come in, unless they're really dying. You know, we don't... Some of us come in here because we're heavy drinkers and we got problems. Some of us come in here because we're coming here because of the courts. You know, some of us come in here through treatment centers. And like I said, I've never been to one from the client perspective. But what I get to do today... Is these things that God continually puts in my life? You know, I'm, I'm dating this girl I love very much. She's got uh, um, 19 years. She she should have 35 years. She came in when she was 23, and at 13 and a half years, kind of like what Mike said, that life got good and everything got great, and all of a sudden she got thirsty, and she went out for about a year and a half, and she's got a powerful story, but that's her story. But she and I are dating each other. And she's got 19 years right now, and there's sometimes where I'll look at her and I'll go. You know, what the heck are you talking about? And Jim, in about five years, you'll understand. So just stick around and keep coming back. And, and, you know, Charlie and Katie P. out in Austin, Texas, they have the same thing. They're only about six months difference, and Katie's got six months longer than Charlie. She says the same thing to Charlie all the time. And they do workshops and, and, and stuff all over the world. And she always says, you know, I tell Charlie, in about six months, it'll be crystal clear to you. And she's like, well, in five years. And I said, yeah, I'd rather it be six months. I don't want to wait five years to learn what you're, what you're trying to tell me. But, you know, we've, we've done the things that you do in a relationship when you're sober. We have battled each other. And we have butted heads on things that were just ego-driven, both of us. And Russell talked about it a second ago. He talked about, you know, whenever we're disturbed, there's something wrong with us. And over Christmas, we were doing one of these little battle things, and, and we'd made a date to go over to um, St. Augustine. And it wasn't a real date, it was just kind of a, you know, you want to go to St. Augustine on Christmas? Sure, why not? And, you know, it wasn't a big deal. We were just going to be friends. We tried the relationship, it wasn't working. We were just going to be friends. And, and also, I got a call from a friend of mine in Orlando who always feeds the homeless on Christmas Day. And on Christmas Eve, I told her, I said, you know, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to run to Orlando and I'm going to feed the homeless. And I had no clue that I had just set off something in her that was so, this was a date that she really thought was going to be us getting back together. She really felt like we were going to be, you know, a couple again. And here I blew it off. and just blew it off like, you know, it was popcorn. You know, we were going to have popcorn at Denny's or something. And, and that's not the way she was feeling. And so I go down to Orlando. I get up at 3 o'clock in the morning drive to Orlando. I'm feeding the homeless people. I get this text, and it's like, you know, you were so selfish, self-centered, and blah, blah, blah. And she just ripped me, and we're done. And I'm sitting there. I send her something back, and I said, you know, if I thought it was so important, I would have stayed. And she calls her sponsor. Her sponsor's Polly P. And Polly P. said, let me get this straight. You're all upset because he went to feed the homeless? (laughs) Boy, when I heard that conversation, I was like, "Yeah, yeah." You know, she had to she had to look at herself because she was pissed at me, and it was her fault. You know, and then I got mad about something, and guess what? I had to look at myself, and that's the hard thing: is to take that spiritual axiom and put it into play and put it into action. And that's what you do. You know, when you when you've got this power, when you source this power that we call God. Whatever individual name you want to put to it is fine with me because it's the greatest power in the world when it's not me. When I decide that I'm not God anymore, and in that third step, you know, from 60 to 63, there is so much material before you get to that third step prayer that talks about the way I was, that I wanted to be the director, that I wanted to be in charge. And in six, I had to admit I have nothing. I have nothing to give anybody as long as I have this ego, this resentments, these fears, this conduct of mine, these things that are blocking me from having this power come into my life. And so in six, I am willing. I'm willing to let this stuff go. And whether God takes it away or not, I was taught, is none of my business. I just know that sometimes I wake up and I don't have this overwhelming, ego-driven desire to do something today. I find myself talking to people that I don't want to talk to. You know, my brain is still working. You know, the monkey's off my back. The circus is still in town, they say. And so my brain still rolls and says, I want to do something else. And a guy says, you know, how did you not drink that one day? And then all of a sudden we have a conversation going. And all of a sudden we're opening the book. And there's nothing I love better than to open a book with a newcomer. And during this whole time that she and I are battling each other, I'm sitting there and I'm really going crazy. I don't think about suicide often. I had a brief glance of I'm just done with this life. But I got this beautiful boy, a 21-year-old boy, and I have a granddaughter. And all of a sudden I get this phone call. First off, I get this thought, you know. We broke up on Sunday, and on Monday I am in this depression. I really am, because I really thought this was my, you know, my dream. And, uh, and it's gone away, and I'm just depressed. And then I find out there's this guy in my home group who's, uh, who's going into the hospital. And I get up Tuesday morning, and I say a prayer to God that I just need to get out of this. I don't know what to do. And I don't know where the thought came from, but it said, why don't you find out about that man in the hospital? And it was Polly's husband, Dave. And through a series of events, he's winding up in the hospital. He had back pain. He was going to go have back surgery, and to do back surgery, they had to do an MRI to make sure his heart would take it, and they found a, a clot in his heart. So they had to get rid of the clot in his heart. He could have died from that clot. And then, when the clock gets removed, they're getting ready to do the surgery on the back and they find a tumor in his lung. Now they've got to get rid of this tumor in his lung. And now this tumor's growing at a rapid They've got to take part of his lung out. And all of a sudden, Polly's asking me to go to the hospital with her husband. Now I'm at the hospital every morning. I'm with Dave when he wakes up. I'm there when the doctors come in. Do you know how much time I'm thinking about Jim and his depression over this girl? Zero. Zero. And so God has put this man in my life, put this man in my life, and I'm not even thinking about Jim anymore. I'm thinking about Dave, and I'm thinking about and What can I do for somebody else? And that's, that's the power of God. You know, Dave gets out of the hospital. He gets his operation. He's, he's, he's healing great right now, and it's God, it's just powerful to watch this because Dave is the one who's sitting on the table getting ready to have this lung removed, And everybody is sending all these prayers. And Polly's a basket case. She is just crying and praying and crying. And Dave's laying there and said, I don't know what everybody's worried about. God's got this. God's got this. And he absolutely does. And he went through that whole operation. And there was a couple times he almost died. And all we could say is, God's got this. And he's doing great today. And when Dave gets out of the hospital, I'm thinking about Jim again. I'm thinking about, oh, man, this girl. And now we're getting back together. And... And let me just tell you that, you know, you got to do this enough times to where things will work out. If you trust God and both of us just turned both of our lives again over to God and said, whatever you want us to do. And so both of us do speaker meetings. Both of us do steps. And, And like Russell was talking about, you know, Jacksonville is full of step speaker meetings. And I love them. I go to them all the time. I love speaker meetings. But, you know, during this period of time, all of a sudden I get a phone call. And it's one of the directors of uh, the largest treatment center in Jacksonville. It's called Gateway Center. And he said, Jim, you know, about six months ago, you, you came in and you did a big book study. We'd like you to take over a big book study there. You can do it Monday or Wednesday or take Monday and Wednesday. And I said, I'll take both. You know, I, I want to do both. And it's the largest state-funded facility. And so it, it doesn't have a lot of people coming in with insurance that are just trying to get Daddy and Mommy off the back, things like that. I don't care. I don't care how you get here. It doesn't matter. But what I get is I get these these people coming out of the streets that don't have a damn dime. And they go through this six- or seven-day detox program that's right there next, and then they're fed right into me. And so every Monday and Wednesday, I've got like 40, 45 brand-new people. Some of, them, some of them are relapsers, but some of them are brand-new. I get to open the book and start all over again. And when I'm opening the book and I'm working with these people, you know, this is definitely not bragging or ego. This is, this is God telling me where I need to be. I need to be with these people. I need to be with you people. I need to be with those people that are struggling that say, you know, I tried AA and it didn't work. And then I, you know, sometimes I get to be a smart aleck and I say, well, what work did you do for AA? And they go, what do you mean, what work did I do for AA? Well, that just tells me you never got to the 12th step. You, know, you never had that spiritual awakening, because when you have that spiritual awakening, you want to go help other people. You want to be involved in other people. You want to open the book and say, did you read this right here in the forward? Who reads the forwards? You, know, you open a book, you read from page one, right? Well, that would have been perfect except they stuck the doctor's opinion in, in those X numbers, those Roman numeral numbers. And if I don't read the doctor's opinion, I'm not going to know what's medically wrong with me. And then it tells me three times to go back to the back of the book, read the spiritual appendix. Well, if I don't read the spiritual appendix, I don't know how to have a spiritual awakening because I'm not getting this bright white light that Bill got. I'm just not. But I'm getting the educational variety, and it comes slowly over time for Jim. And Jim has to take his time, and Jim has to really focus not on Jim, but on what's being, what's being developed in Jim's life, which is a God conscience. You know, it's inside of me. You know, like, like he was saying earlier, the great fact in my life today is, is the central fact that God is the most important thing in my life. Alcoholics Anonymous and staying sober is absolutely my priority. But I know that unless I have God leading me into Alcoholics Anonymous, unless I put God at the very forefront of my life, I don't stand a chance of staying sober. I just don't stand a chance because when I didn't, I drank. And, you know, the progressive part of this disease, sure. I've seen it firsthand. My little brother's 10 years younger than me, you know, he fell into the same thing I did. And he became an alcoholic. And the only reason I said that is because he came to Alcoholics Anonymous after his 50 UI. And he picked up a white chip and he got a book and he called me one day and he said, I can't do this spiritual way of life. I just can't. And about six years ago, I was holding my little brother's hand. And he took his last breath. You know, at the age of 44 years old, my little brother died from active alcoholism. And that was a powerful message from God to me. And I got active. I got into service. I got into, I really got back into doing the deal because I was starting to drift apparently. And almost five years to the day after that, I found my older brother up on on our property in Georgia, and he'd been dead for three days from alcoholism. And so I lost both my brothers to this disease. My older brother did not want to hear about Alcoholics Anonymous when I got sober said, I do not want to hear about God. you got five minutes before I die to talk to me about God. Other than that, leave me alone. His son was 24 and died from a heroin overdose. My brother became a rock. Bang. And he didn't want anything to do with any kind of power. And so I never got a chance to talk to him about God. But both of them are in how it works. You know, there are those who cannot and those that will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Simple, but not always easy is what it says. And it's not always easy. I mean, today I still struggle sometimes. But I'm not struggling with God because God has got no interest in me struggling. I'm struggling with my selfishness, self-centeredness still today. And so I know it, you know, I'm shooting for perfection. That's what the 12 and 12 tells me to do in 6 and 7 is I shoot for this perfect life. And I always am going to be willing to settle for progress because it's spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection. But if I don't shoot for perfection, I won't even get any progress. And so in that seventh step, when I say that prayer and I humbly ask God to take the good and the bad, to take everything away from me. Now, the prayers in the book are almost always followed with we say a prayer something like this. And so they're not telling me specifically what to say as long as I have the general idea. Take away these defects. Or my assets, things that I think are positive things in my life. You know, I can think something's really positive, but if I don't turn it over to God, I won't know if I can use it or not. And so I have to be willing to turn over everything, everything I have. You know, in the fourth step and fifth step, Bill talks about, you know, the foundation. He talks about... Um, are the stones in place? Is our work solid? Did we put? Uh, did we skip putting cement in the foundation? How about mortar without sand? You know, he talks all about construction. You know, it's all about architect and building, building a new life, building this triumphant arch that we're going to walk through, which is a free man, not just from alcohol, but from selfish and self-centeredness, which I'm full of. And then when we get to 6 and 7, he kind of goes into a landscaper. He talks about, you know, we can trim away the branches, the dead parts of our branches, but we still are going to have those defects of character because you can trim the branches. But if you don't give up the roots, which is where everything grows from, if you don't give God the roots of your, your defects and your assets, then how can he take them away? If I'm still willing to hold on to this lust, and, and I use the word lust a lot, you know, and sex, lust, whatever. You know, if I want to hold on to that, well, God's not going to jerk it out of my hand. But if I say, God, I don't want to have this anymore. I've had enough of me being twisted around the the axle over these this stupid thing. And the next thing I know, I've got somebody in front of me, and I'm not... I'm looking her in the eye, you know, not looking down at her legs. And I don't even think about it. You know, God... God will remove anything and everything that I'm willing to put in his hands in his own time. You know, I I would tell Willie, I would say, you know, I gave my ego to God. And then today I'm sitting there and I'm just telling people how great I am. And he goes, and? I said, well, he didn't remove it. He says, and? Sponsors need to have bigger vocabularies. They need to... They need to say other things other than and or stare at you. It's like, what part did you miss? God will take it when it's time that God takes it. And maybe God wants you to still suffer with that a little bit. I don't know that God stands up there, you know, with some crook and a big beard and says, Jim suffers today. I don't think that. But I I know today that I have this free will. And if I take this free will and I start running with it, I start running with this ego. I start running with these fears. You know, God's going to let me run with them. And he's going to let me run until I hit that wall and I smash my face and I go, oh, man, God, please take away this fear. Please take away anything that's blocking me today. Clear away my defects, root and branch. You know, relieve me of the bondage itself that I might better do your will. Take away my difficulties. That's the third step. Please, God, take away these defects of character that I might better serve you. I don't know how many of you talked about thy will, not mine, be done before we came to Alcoholics Anonymous. But, I mean, that's the deal today. You know, I really want to be on a more God-centered basis than a gym-centered basis. I really want to be able to help somebody else. And in helping somebody else, I'm helping myself. These paradoxes that come in here, the you know, the things that Russell talked about, the jaywalker. God, I wish he hadn't have said that because it was, it was my biggest thing. I kept saying, who writes about somebody who jumps out in front of a car? Mm-hmm. Over and over, this guy's jumping out in front of cars. Why they put this in this book? He says, Jim, why are you drinking again today? You know you're going to get killed. You know it's going to hurt you. You know you're going to hurt your family. You know you're going to hurt your son. You have proved it over and over. And yet, you're gonna pick up that drink. Aren't you the jaywalker? Aren't you Jim, who has this knowledge about Alcoholics Anonymous and thinks it's a good idea to put a little whiskey in his milk? It won't hurt me because I got a full stomach, right? Wrong. Wrong. It'll kill me because alcohol to me sets off this weird thing that only alcoholics know about that phenomenon of craving. And all of a sudden, that allergic reaction that only I have, and maybe you have, I can't tell every one of you you have it, but I know that I have it, that I only know one thing's going to happen if I take a drink. I'm going to take another drink, and then somebody's going to get hurt. And through God's grace and God's will, I don't have to drink today. But not only that, I don't have to be in charge I don't have to be in control, as long as I'm willing to turn over these defects of character. And you know, real quick, I just want to—I want to throw something out. Um, you know, I'm 14 years sober, and uh, and I'm in a meeting, and a guy talks about the seven deadly sins. Right? Okay. Okay. If you read the Bible, they were all there: lust, power, you know, pride, ego, all that. He talks about the seven deadly needs. And I never heard that before. And, you know, one of these AA members wrote this little book. It's called The Seven Deadly Needs, you know, the need to know, the need to be right, the need to get even, the need to look good, the need to judge, the need to keep score, the need to control. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, how many of those things do I still do? How often am I sitting in a meeting and somebody goes on and on and on and on and on, and all of a sudden I'm thinking to myself, "Does this guy got any humility? Can't he shut up?" I need to judge, and when I look at somebody and I judge him, and I say, "Where's their humility?" I have to look at me and say, "Oh my God, where's mine?" I'm not walking in that man's shoes. I don't know why he's sharing so much. I don't know what is going on. You know, I want to bring what Russell brought a minute ago. I want to bring the music to Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to make people laugh. I really do. I want to make people smile. Not from an ego standpoint, but from the standpoint that we can laugh at ourselves. You know, I can sit there and talk about I came to Alcoholics Anonymous because I lost bladder control. And people go, hmm. I said, well, you know, to explain it to you, I was drinking so much I was peeing on my wife, and she told my dad, and my dad told me to come to AA. So I really came to Alcoholics Anonymous because I'm a bedwetter at 44 years old. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, people giggle and laugh. You know, I go to the Rotary Club, and I say, you know, I'm an alcoholic, and I used to pee all over my wife. I'm not going to get any kind of humor at all. <laughs> I, I, go, I go to a PTA meeting and say that, and they're going to have a couple people eject me, you know. But we laugh about it. And then I read back in, doc, in, in uh, yeah, Dr. Paul's story in the back, you know, about acceptance. He used to be Dr. Alcoholic Addict. You know, everybody focused on the acceptance as the answer, right? But really and truly, Dr. Paul was talking about the end of his story, about expectations versus serenity. That the more I put expectations on other people and what they should be doing, the less serenity I really have. And I need to take my magic magnifying mind off of these people. But in his story, if you read the whole story, he talks about, because I loved it. You know, when I finally read it and I looked at it and I went, Dr. Paul peed on himself too. (laughs) He said, you know, when he came to AA, the dog quit peeing in his lap and so did he. And I got it. The dog was never peeing in his lap. Doctor, Dr. Paul had a good little, you know, put the dog in his lap and he gets away with it. Well, you know, the need to control, the need to get even, all these needs come down to one thing. All I need to do is rely on God. And he supplies me with all my needs. All the needs that I think I have. Our wants. Jim wants this. Jim wants this. You know, I'm back treating God like Santa Claus. You know, give me this and I'll do this, God. I'll make a deal with you. No. No, I don't make deals with God. God's running my life. God's running the show. God's got this. And he's got this every day. And he's got this all day. As long as I'm willing to turn my will in my life, and my defects of character over to him on a daily basis, God will provide for me everything I've ever needed or wanted. And I'll talk more about that in 10 and 11. time. Thanks.